Good morning. You can be seated. Let's begin together in prayer. You come to us, God, in the body of Christ, not by suspending the complexities of our humanity, not by interrupting this humanity, but by inhabiting it. Help us to better do the same. Help us to resist the temptation of easy answers, clean and firm explanations, for these seem in many ways unhuman, God, and they're also often inhumane. May we cultivate instead a posture of humility, something we're learning from your posture of humility, that is the passion and compassion of Jesus. And may it be, God, that my posture is one of gratitude as well. Thankfulness for you, the God who loves me and has given me much, and for this community, for the people in this sanctuary who have taught me much. Amen. The story begins with an introduction. My name is Ruth, we're told, in the first line of Marilyn Robinson's first novel, Housekeeping. Ruth goes on to situate herself within a genealogy, and this situating is important. Ruth is contextualized by a legacy of grief. She's bereaved of a grandfather and a mother and a grandmother, and each of these deaths was tragic in their own way and unexpected, and these losses are defining. Ruth lives her life in the presence of people who aren't physically there, trying to give sense to the memories and the absences that remain after death. For Ruth, dying and grieving, these aren't episodic experiences. They're not things you live past. They're things you live with. Quote, the force behind the movement of time is a mourning that will not be comforted. End quote. And while this is a truth that issues from Ruth's fictional world, it's a reality that has been sounded in our world as well. Early this summer, our national attention was again turned toward mourning. We're likely all familiar with the setting and the story, Charleston, South Carolina, Emanuel AME Church, nine black churchgoers who were killed for being black churchgoers. And so we mourn these nine lives. And if we would listen to poet and professor Claudia Rankin, we might come to consider that these lives, too, are contextualized by a legacy of grief. The condition of black life is one of mourning, Rankin suggests in a New York, in a New York Times article, quoting a friend. And the situations are surely distinct. Robinson's Ruth isn't plainly decrying systems of devaluation and death. Rankin is. But the sentiments appear in some way to be shared. The force behind time is mourning, Ruth says. And Rankin gives particularity to this expression, to this experience. The condition of black life is mourning. 
And it seems to me then that, Rank that Ruth and Rankin might teach us something about living with mourning, about living through mourning, in fact. And they help to move us as well toward the scriptures that were read for us and toward the tradition of resistance and renewal that inheres within them. Now when the king was settled in his house, 2 Samuel 7, he said to the prophet Nathan, See now, I'm living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. As Walter Brueggemann argues, it might not be here that David was trying to house God. It might be, rather, that David was trying to hold God, attempting to obligate God to legitimate his own power. The answer to the problem of legitimacy in the ancient world, Brueggemann explains, is to build a temple, end quote. And God's response is an expression of freedom, Brueggemann confirms. And let's consider the way in which God's freedom is expressed. Thus says the Lord, verse 5, I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt. And so at what becomes, in verses 11 through 15, a pronouncement of the Davidic dynasty, a proclamation of royal power, there is this allusion to the disempowered, to the land of Israelite slavery, and to freed slaves. David attempts to hold God in place, to substantiate his own position, and God's response isn't a concession. It is, rather, a pointed indication of divine preference for the displaced, the disinherited, an indication of God's propensity toward not permanency, but itinerancy and wandering. And this should give us caution. The wildness of God should give pause to our own attempts at legitimation and substantiation and certainty. Especially, Brueggemann argues, in our historical moment when the, quote, power to dehumanize and destroy is so readily available, end quote. Before any endorsement of power, God's preference as God's presence is for those exploited by power. And when God does confirm the Davidic dynasty, it's not as a pledge of steady approval but as a promise of steadfast love. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, verses 12 through 15, and I will not take my steadfast love from him. This promise might be understood as indicating an emergence in the theology of Israel. Before the promise, Brueggemann argues, in accordance with the Mosaic covenant, Israel related to God through a kind of if on the condition of their obedience. But with this promise, there's something affixed to the conditional if, a sort of nevertheless. And nevertheless doesn't dispense with the condition. It doesn't supersede if. When he commits iniquity, I'll punish him, God says, thus stating the condition. But I will not take my love as before. And in God's promise to David then, if and at the same time, nevertheless, this is the constitutive tension, and it's a generative tension. 
It's in this promise to David, in fact, that Brueggemann locates a new and enduring tradition. Quote, the hope held by Israel that there is a coming David who will right wrong, end quote. It's this promise to David that issues and sustains promise of the Messiah. And if we take the Messiah as an instance of God's physical and material involvement in the world, it seems to make sense that this figure would hold the tension between the conditional and nevertheless. For the Messiah is, in some way, a joining together of God's godness and our humanness, an exposing of God's constancy to the difficulty of human community. And we should remember that in this second Samuel text, the promise of love began with a pronouncement of loyalty, and not to the king, but to his people. God's promise of a coming kingdom, the promise of a hopeful future, follows upon, it issues from, God's very commitment to the disinherited, God's sympathetic wandering with the displaced. These are salient features of God's message to the prophet Nathan. And they're salient as well for one of America's formative, even if sometimes sterilized, prophetic movements. One of this nation's famed, even if often sanitized, prophetic figures. In a 1961 speech, Martin Luther King Jr. argued, as he would again in a letter from Birmingham jail, not that a law is unjust if it offends traditional or denominational sensibilities, party or religious sensibilities. An unjust law, King suggests, is one that, quote, degrades human personality, end quote. An unjust law impedes human liberty because, once more, God's law gives preference and presence to those exploited by power, because God's law leads a liberatory exodus away from the abuses of state power, as in Egypt. And in King's philosophy, too, there is tension between if and nevertheless. Oppressed people can't remain oppressed forever, King posits. The urge for freedom will eventually come, end quote. But this seeming promise of freedom, with its echo of nevertheless, is dependent entirely not on the simple passage of time, but on active protest in time. Quote, nonviolent action seeks to create such tension that a community is forced to confront the issue, end quote. And for King as well, this tension connects to a messianic promise. It carries a messianic tradition Near the close of that 1961 speech, King quotes the poet James Russell Lowell. And in his poem, The Present Crisis, Lowell proposes, To every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight, parts the goats upon the left hand, and the sheep upon the right, end quote. Promise of the Messiah isn't a thing to be satisfied once and for all, exhausted once and forever. If God is to renew the world, to right the world, it's because humankind has, 
again and again struggled against wrong in the world. This work isn't the labor of God. It is, to adapt King again, humanity's co-labor with God. We can locate this tradition in 2 Samuel. We can situate it with King, with Lowell, and we can find it in another of King's influences as well. As part of his works, The Gospel in Brief and My Religion, Leo Tolstoy offers an interpretation of this morning's gospel story. And as I've mentioned to some of you before, it seems to me that Tolstoy's interpretation activates a certain invitation in the text. Tolstoy positions his reading at the gaps in the narrative. Jesus hands over five loaves and two fish, and it's given to us to wonder at the more than 5,000 people who were fed. In Tolstoy's wondering, quote, Jesus commanded his disciples to give of what they had, and those who had food followed the example of Jesus and his disciples and offered what they had to others, end quote. Jesus doesn't supernaturally multiply the bread and the fish. According to Tolstoy, the bread and the fish are already multiple. And what Jesus does then is to invite everyone to an act of redistribution. And I would argue that Tolstoy doesn't in this way neutralize the gospel miracle. What he does instead is to naturalize the miracle. And these things are distinct. In our world of disparate wealth, certainly it would seem miraculous for surplus to be voluntarily forfeited willingly redistributed to cover shortage. And here again, there is a suggestion that messianic renewal is communal. Messianic salvation depends on participation, co-labor with God. The story doesn't begin with Jesus writing a need. Whatever their motivation, the story begins with the disciples explaining to Jesus in effect, that something is wrong there. And so we'll return to Claudia Rankin's article, because in her description of black life in America, Rankin explains to us that there is something wrong here. For African-American families, she tells us, living in a state of mourning and fear remains commonplace, end quote. And for the last few years, the numbers have made regular appearance on our screens and in our newspapers. They've been offered as commentary on another regular appearance, the killing of black Americans. In this country, a black boy has a shorter life expectancy than a white boy by five years. The U.S. Sentencing Commission reports that black men receive longer sentences than white men by 20% for identical crimes. Black men are likelier than white men to be shot and killed by police by more than 21 times the total. And June 17th wasn't the first attack on Emanuel AME Church. In fact, this is only a recent addition to the centuries-long list of injurious and murderous violence against black churches. And many of us agree these numbers should matter. They should be enough for an overwhelming consensus that something is wrong here. 
But as Paula Ionide argues in The Emotional Politics of Racism, statistics aren't usually as persuasive as we expect them to be. We offer these numerical facts as objective proof, but they can only be received through subjective perspectives. And so they might be poor facilitators of human connection, poor cultivators of empathy. But these numbers are, of course, realities born by lived experiences, and human lives should be harder for us to dismiss. If we listen to one another, we might hear, among other voices, Claudia Rankin's friend who, quote, when she gave birth to her son before naming him, thought, I have to get him out of this country, end quote. We might hear another of Rankin's friends explaining that, quote, her son's childhood feels impossible because he will have to be so much more careful, end quote. And these living experiences should cause us to mourn. A sustained state of national mourning for black lives is called for, Rankin suggests, in order to point to the undeniability of their devaluation, end quote. And this is why we should still be talking about Charleston. Even as news attention moves as it does toward other stories, because we should mourn, and because we should not stop mourning. We should mourn because nine people are dead, and we should not stop mourning because systemic devaluation and discrimination is alive. We should mourn because of the impossible difficulty of this image, a young white man who sat with, maybe prayed with, the black worshipers he would then murder. And we should not stop mourning because while this image is shocking, maybe it should no longer be surprising. And we have to stop making a kind of surprised spectacle of this and similar images, bold headlines that we print and play until they no longer cause us to feel and so that we can then forget. We should not stop mourning because the structures of power that disadvantage some of us are destroying all of us. They're dehumanizing all of us. And as Fred Moten and Jack Halberstam argue in the Undercommons, recognizing this can make for meaningful coalition. Mourning is a strategy for renewal. It's an orientation that permits confusion and indignation without precluding compassionate action and celebration and joy. And mourning cultivates a certain kind of hope as Ruth reminds us in Robinson's housekeeping, the first Christians were mourners. After the death of Jesus, quote, the mourning would not be comforted until he was so sharply lacked and so powerfully remembered that his friends felt him beside them as they walked along the road, end quote. Through mourning, Joan Halifax explains, the one who has died passes from the outside world to inside our being. This, she says, is mourning's heaviness, and this might also be mourning's hope. The people we mourn are gone from us, but nevertheless, maybe. And even if this seems like small comfort, they're not entirely lost to us. 
Their memories have life in our lives if we would give them life with our lives. And so mourning might hold this same tension as the messianic tradition, if and nevertheless. And by giving ourselves to mourning, then, maybe we claim anew the inexhaustible messianic promise. Maybe we cultivate anew our own messianic practice, living like hope is not something we feel, it's something we do. Let's hear again the words of God to David. I will raise up your offspring who shall come forth from your body. And the words of Christ to his disciples, you give them something to eat. And may we no longer anticipate God's renewal, but let us embody it. Let's begin it. May we no more await God's salvation. Let's become it. Amen. Amen.